our sermon text. We're almost at the end of the book of Revelation already somehow. We're at Revelation 20, and we're going to be reading verses 7 uh, through the end of the chapter. Revelation 20, verses 7 through 15. Give ear to the reading of God's holy word today. It says, And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, and from his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The sentence of the reading of God's word, you may be seated. Well, we're continuing almost to the end of our study through this book of Revelation. Um, I don't know about you, but when I first started, I was very much intimidated by the idea of preaching through it, and now I'm almost finding myself disappointed that we're almost done with it. I've, I've been enjoying it and been encouraged by it. I hope that's the same for you as well. Here in the 20th chapter, this, the latter half of the chapter, we're, we're, John tells us of a vision. Remember, Revelation is a prophetic book. It's a book of visions. It's, it's a book, uh, as Dr. Johnson has said in his book on Revelation, it's a picture book, not a puzzle book. John has given visions that represent things. This is not a video snapshot of the future, so, so-called. That's the way many seem to interpret the book. That you can think, If you think of it that way, you're going to be awfully confused because you're going to be thinking, are we going to see a dragon being chained and thrown into a pit? That's not the point. It's teaching us about what God is doing and what he will do. And so our, our text this morning, this short passage at the end of chapter 20, it's going to tell us of at least two things that we're going to look at today. The first, it's going to tell us about the final defeat of Satan. The final defeat of Satan, that's verses 7 through 10. And the second thing it's going to focus on, among other things, is the final judgment of the wicked in verses 11 through 15. So the final defeat of Satan and the final judgment of the wicked, that'll be what we're going to look at today. Now our text this morning, it speaks of the day of judgment at the end of time when our Lord Jesus Christ returns in glory. That's something that we, you might know, we confess that every first Sunday of the month when we confess one of the two ancient ecumenical creeds of the Christian faith, the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. Every time we recite those together and and read those, uh, we are reminded of one of the truths of the Christian faith, and that is Jesus is going to return in glory and judge the living and the dead. The, the Nicene Creed puts it, I think, memorably when it says, He shall come again with glory to judge the quick, that's the living, to judge the quick and the dead. You notice the, the difference there. He will come again, we got that, but it says with glory. The first time he came in humiliation, in, in humility, and, and, and died for our sins. He came once to deal with sins. 
to save us from our sins. But the second time, he's coming with glory, and he's going to judge the living and the dead. That final judgment on the last day, if you understand those creeds, that final judgment on the last day is a truth, even though it's de- it's denied by many who call themselves Christians, who profess to believe in Christ, it's, it's denied by many who would profess to be teachers in Christ's church, but as unpopular as this doctrine sometimes has always been, it's something that's found throughout Scripture. This is not just a doctrine that's found in here and there in one or two places in the Bible. It's found throughout the pages of God's Word. And as we've confessed it in those creeds, we learn that it's one of the essential truths of the Christian faith. You know, without the truth of the reality of the Lord Jesus Christ coming again on that last day and judging the living and the dead, you don't have Christianity. There is no true Christianity without that truth, without that doctrine. Now, all of this, uh, if you were here last week, you're gonna, you're, you'll know that the thousand years it mentions in our text, all of this is going to happen at the end of that thousand-year period. Last week, if you were here, you might remember that that, what does that thousand years represent? The, enti- the entire church age, the entire present dispensation of the gospel until Christ comes back. So that's what the millennium is. It's, it's the reign of Christ on this earth before his return. And he's reigning when? Not some future time. He's reigning now. His reign will be made manifest completely, you know, consummated on that last day. But we're not waiting for Christ to start reigning. He's reigning now. He's building his church now. He's defending his church now. And that's what... That's the background of our text. So let's look look at the first thing that our text mentions, and that is the final defeat of Satan. Look at verses 7 through 10. In verses 7 through 10, John says, And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather, gather them, rather, for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So here, the the first thing that probably jumps off the page at you and gets your attention is, We're told uh, by John here in this vision that Satan is unbound. He's released from his prison. That's what John spoke of earlier in the passage last Sunday in verse 3 when he said that Satan was going to be released, quote, released for a little while. So in God's decree, in God's plan, in some way, Satan was going to be bound for, for a long time. But for a short period of time, he was going to be let go. He was going to be released for a little while. Now, if you were here last Sunday, you might remember what, what is the nature of that binding that was spoken of in the previous passage? In what way was Satan bound? In what way is he bound now? And in what way is he not bound? The binding of Satan in, in the earlier verses of this chapter, chapter do not indicate, they don't teach, that Satan during this thousand-year period was going to be inactive completely. It doesn't say that he's powerless for a thousand years. What it says is uh, he was bound, quote, verse 3, that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. In what way and for what purpose is he bound now? He's bound that he might not deceive the nations the way he used to any longer. And so when he's unbound, when he's released from his prison, what does that mean? 
That's the thing that changes. For a time, now he is allowed and permitted in the future to deceive the nations. It's what our text says at least twice. It mentions that in particular. In verse 8, John says Satan will, quote, come out to do what? To deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth. Now, what does that mean? The four corners of the earth. He's just saying throughout the world. There's no, I know, we, he knew the globe was round. He knew it wasn't square. But the different, the four winds, the four corners, all around the world, those who don't know Christ, he was going to deceive those nations at the four corners of the earth. And again in verse 10, he's described, the devil is described as the one who had deceived them, deceived the nations into joining for battle against the Lord and against his Christ. And now, what is the purpose or the result of this satanic deception in our text? It says the purpose is, quote, verse 8, to gather them for battle. And this is a, in this vision, this is a pretty impressive army. What does it call them? It says this army, verse 8, is like the sand of the sea. What does that mean? It means, one, they're from all over the world. Two, you can't count them. There are, they are so numerous, this army of Satan, uh, of unbelievers and the unrepentant, that, that it's, you can't even begin to count them. And who is it that this innumerable, satanically inspired army is seeking to wage war against? The church, the people of God. What does it say? In verse 9 it says that those wicked nations, quote, marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. Now, maybe you're thinking to yourself, what place is that? I don't think that's the point. Again, this is a vision teaching literal truths through symbols uh, the church is not located in one specific city on, on this earth. But the picture is one of being surrounded by your enemies on all sides, with no hope, with no place of escape, no way to go. You know, if you're, if you're in the, if you're at war and you're surrounded, that's a bad thing. You've got, you've got nowhere to go. That's, that's what the picture that's being painted, uh, is. Now what happens in this, in, in short order in our passage, it's, it's pretty, if you think about it, it's not described in very much detail. The, Satan deceives the nations, they gather an army, they surround God's people, and you're expecting to hear details of the battle and how bad it is, but what's the next thing that you read of happening? God's response in defending his church is swift and decisive. It says, fire, verse 9, fire came down from heaven and consumed them. That's a very Old Testament sounding image. Sodom and Gomorrah, the, the prophets of Mount Carmel, the, the prophets of Baal and Mount Carmel. Fire just comes down and that's it. We're not even left to fight on our own in this picture. God does the whole thing. It's like the, the Israelites at the Red Sea. They had nowhere to go when Pharaoh's chariots are barreling down on them. It's, you know, the rock in a wet place. They've got, they're gonna die, but what happens? God happens. God does uh, what he does. Well, he sends fire from heaven in this vision and consumes the enemies of his church. Notice that no, no details of the battle are even given because that's not the point. It's kind of like David and Goliath in some sense. When you read the story of David and Goliath, who's the one that's at disadvantage in the story? We read it backwards every time. We look at Goliath and go, oh, David doesn't have a chance. It's wrong. Goliath never stood a chance. Not because of David, but because of David's God. Well, the same thing is true for God's people, especially on that last day. And then it says in verse 10 that the devil is cast into the lake of fire. 
Now, the devil at one point in the future when Christ returns is once for all finally going to be defeated and judged for all of eternity on that great day when Christ returns. All the things that he has caused to go wrong, all the things that he has wrought by his deceptions, even the the fall of mankind into sin in the Garden of Eden, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to undo all of that and punish him for it. Now, you and I might tend to focus on the aspect in our text that speaks of the activity of Satan. I think that's our tendency. A lot of the books you may have read tend to focus on those things and get us all worked up and worried and, and wrapped around the axle. We might get all worked up about the rage of the enemies of Christ uh, against his church. We might be at times, sometimes we are tempted to speculate as to what Satan's going to do, how it's going to unfold, how bad things might get as if they don't get bad now uh, for the people of God at that time. But that's not the focus of our passage, is it? If you get too lost in the weeds around that part of the, of the passage, I think you missed the point. The point is not what Satan gets to do. The point is that Christ defends his church. Remember this, you know, from time to time I have to repeat things over and over again about this book. I think that's helpful. And one of the things you have to remember is this book, this passage as well, but the whole book of Revelation is given, it's intended to give comfort and encouragement to the suffering church. It's meant to comfort and encourage God's people, not to frighten us. If you read Revelation and you're a believer in Christ and you find yourself getting disturbed and frightened, you're reading it wrong with all due respect. If someone is teaching you this book in such a way as to frighten and trouble you, they're teaching it wrong if you're a believer in Christ. If you're not a believer in Christ, maybe you should be troubled and and let that lead you to repent and turn to Christ. But it's meant to comfort and encourage the church, especially the afflicted and persecuted church. And so the focus in verses 7 through 10 is not what's Satan going to do to us. The focus is on the certainty and the finality of God's just judgment uh, on the last day, on the enemy, the last enemy of Christ and his church, which is Satan. Here we are reminded in a picturesque way that Jesus Christ is faithful to gather and to defend his church, especially on that last day. The suffering and persecuted church, which happens now, we just prayed about it a little bit earlier in the service. We think of our brothers and sisters in Iran and North Korea and China, Nigeria and elsewhere, when they read this, what's the point? To comfort them and encourage them in the sure knowledge that their enemies, our enemies, the enemies of the gospel of Christ, even the beast, the false prophet and Satan himself, that is, you know, what, what is the beast? The wicked rulers and wicked nations that oppress the gospel and oppress God's people, the false prophet, false religion of any kind that would seek to, to lend to that same Persecution, and even Satan himself, the one behind the whole thing, they will all get theirs. They will all get what's coming to them in, in the judgment on that last day, and they'll be thrown into the lake of fire. They will, they will get what's coming to them, and God's people will be relieved. Well, that brings us to the second thing in our text, and that's the final judgment of the wicked. Look at verses 11, 11 through 15. John says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, and from his presence... Earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades 
gave up the dead that were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And so what does our text remind us of? It's not just the devil, the beast, and the false prophet who are going to be justly judged by the Lord Jesus Christ and, and punished in hell for all eternity. It's a sobering truth of the scripture, but it's one the Bible teaches us over and over again. What does John tell us about? He tells us of a vision of a great white throne and Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, opening the books and judging all the living and the dead. This is taught uh, by Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 25 in Matthew's gospel. In Matthew 25, 31, uh, verses 31 to 33, it says this, When the Son of Man comes in all his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Now in that same chapter in Matthew 25, uh, the Lord Jesus tells the wicked and the unrepentant that they're going to share in the same fate as the devil himself in hell. It says in in verse 41 of Matthew 25, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, what? Prepared for the devil and his angels. Same same, uh, punishment. Same place of punishment. It's a sobering and terrifying thought. Anybody who is outside of Christ and still in their sins uh, should be troubled, to say the least, by this passage. The same eternal fire of hell that awaits the devil himself. We, we, we always, people always talk about Hitler when they talk about hell. The devil, the same, the same hell that awaits him that he deserves is also awaiting anybody who rejects Christ and remains unrepentant. And so we as the church, we as evangelists, we don't do anybody any favors by downplaying or denying that doctrine. We might not give offense to them in this life, but you're not, we're not helping anybody when we do that. We're not helping anybody. We're actually hurting them by not telling them what the Bible says about these things, especially when it says it so clearly and so often. God's just judgment on the last day is nothing to be downplayed or denied. Well, that brings us to one other thing about this judgment is that our text twice tells us this judgment will be according to works. Maybe you read that and were kind of puzzled by that. What does that mean? How am I supposed to understand that? It says in verses 12 and 13 both that the dead were going to be judged according to what they had done. In other words, our, the, the record of our lives is what's going to be weighed in the scales, so to speak. Again, that should be a terrifying thought to anybody who is outside of Christ. That should be a very unsettling thought for anyone who would dare to suppose that he or she has lived a good enough life to merit heaven. Anybody who thinks, well, I'm, I'm basically a good person, so God's going to let me in, should read this text and think long and hard about that. Now, the fact that God is going to judge each one according to our works is, is also a truth taught throughout the Scriptures. It's not just an Old Testament thing. It's not just a Revelation 20 thing. Paul talks about it in the book of Romans, Romans 2, verses 6 through 8. In Romans 2, 6 through 8, Paul says this, He, that's God, He will render to each one according to his works. 
To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Think about Matthew 25. Remember that story of the sheep and the goats? How does Jesus determine who is in what category? On what basis does he decide one is a sheep and one is a goat? Listen to his words in Matthew 25, 33 to 40. It says, He will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Why? For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick. And you visited me, I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, and feed you, or thirsty, and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger, and welcome you, or naked, and clothe you? And when did we see you sick, or in prison, and visit you? And and the king, that's Jesus, the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to whom? Me. So who, how do, who, what do the sheep look like? How are they recognized? How are they distinguished from the goats? The sheep are those who are righteous. He calls them the righteous. They are those who are blessed by the Father to inherit the kingdom. And when was that inheritance prepared for them? Before the foundation or from the foundation of the world. What does that mean? That means their salvation was by grace. That God set his love upon them before the foundation of the world and prepared their inheritance of the kingdom from before the foundation of the world. They are chosen in Christ from all eternity. If you're a Christian this morning, why is that? You may not know this, but it's because God chose you. He chose to save you by his grace before the foundation of the world. Before day one of creation, he chose to save you before he even made you. But how are the sheep that is God's people distinguished from the goats? By how we live. We're distinguished from the goats by how we live. The saints are those who do what? Give food to the hungry, give drink to the thirsty, who welcome strangers and clothe the naked, visit the sick, and visit the prisoner. And why is it? Because in doing that to them, we really do it to him and do it for him. Now, how will the goats, on the other hand, the wicked, how are they distinguished? How will they be judged? Why will they be judged eternally in hell? For not doing those same things. Notice that all these things in this passage are sins of omission. It doesn't say they did all these awful things. They probably did, some of them. But it's what they failed to do. It's sins of omission in that particular Passage. So it's failing to love one's neighbor, and in failing to love one's neighbor, they failed to love the Lord. And as we know in the rest of Scripture, that's the summary of the whole law. On these two things hang all the law and the prophets, loving God and loving the neighbor. And look, in our text, no one will be left out of this judgment. John says that he saw the dead, quote, great and small, verse 12. Now, maybe we might be thinking, well, you know, if he judges the great ones, the, the important people that were bad, that's fine. The great and the small, he saw them standing before the throne of God's just judgment. 
What does that mean? That means no one, no matter how great and important in the world's eyes, no matter how powerful, rich, whatever in this world's eyes, none of them will be able to avoid that judgment. Everyone will be judged according to their deeds in this life. On the other side of the same coin, no matter how small and insignificant someone might be, someone might be unknown to anybody uh, in the world's eyes, they will not be overlooked or forgotten as well. They will also be judged according to their works and justly punished for their sins and transgressions against a holy God. God is no respecter of persons. God is no respecter of persons. Now, the only ones who are going to be able to stand on that great day of God's just judgment are those who are they. It says it in our text at least twice. Those whose names are found where? In the book of life or the Lamb's book of life. So what's the primary difference between the sheep and the goats? Between those who are to be cast in the lake of fire and those who will be with the Lord forever is whether or not their name is found in the book of life. Here's the question. How do you know if your name is written in the Lamb's book of life? Now, earlier in the book of Revelation, it also calls that, it mentions people's names being written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. Now, what is that meant to do? It's not meant to unsettle you as a Christian. It's meant to comfort you. Your salvation has been written, as it were, in stone by God's hand. It's settled in heaven. Your salvation is not in question if you are a Believer, but but how do you know? How can we know that our names are written in the Lamb's book of life? One, have you professed faith in Jesus Christ? Are you trusting in him for salvation? But how do you know if one has trusted in Christ other than their profession of faith? It'll be evidenced by a true and living faith that is life-changing. It will affect how you live. That's what it means for a believer to be judged according to what he has done or what she has done. It's not that you gain heaven or merit or earn heaven by what you do, but it's evidence of a true and living faith in Christ. It will change how you live. Robert Mounts, in his commentary on Revelation, uh, helpfully sums this up, I think, briefly. He says, the issue is not salvation by works, but works as the irrefutable evidence of a man's actual relationship with God. Man is saved by faith, but faith is inevitably revealed by the works it produces. You're not saved by works. What does Paul say in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9? For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not of yourself, not a result of works so that no man can boast. But you are saved for good works. Verse 10. You're not saved by good works at all, but you are saved for the purpose of them, that you might live for Christ. What does James say In James chapter 2, he speaks of this same exact thing. James 2, verses 14 to 19, he writes, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? What's the implied answer? No. Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister, this sounds very much like Matthew 25, is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? It's not. It's an insult, right? He says, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Good job. 
Even the demons believe and do what? Tremble or shudder. What's he saying? He's saying faith without works, you know, faith that just gives lip service to God, to faith in Christ. It's no better, it's actually worse than demonic faith, so-called. Because the demons at least have the good sense to tremble, whereas the hypocrite does not. Brothers and sisters, faith without works is what? It's dead. Such faith is not safe because it is not a true and living faith. It's not real faith. It's not the kind of faith that God gives that saves. We're not saved by works. Please please keep that straight. You are not saved by what you do. But works are the evidence of a true and living faith. We show forth our faith by our works. And without that, any supposed faith is less than the faith of demons, because at least they have the sense again to tremble before God. They know that God is one, and they know what that means. We might profess that we know there's one God and act like we don't know it at all. Now, all this talk of the day of judgment and the lake of fire can sound very overwhelming. It can sound discouraging sometimes. But again, this this passage, this whole book is meant to encourage and comfort believers in Christ. So if you're a Christian this morning, this is meant to encourage you not to trouble you. Westminster Confession of Faith 33.3 says this, about the about the last days, it says, As Christ would have us to be certainly persuaded that there shall be a day of judgment, both to deter all men from sin and for the greater consolation of the godly in their adversity. Notice that. The truth of God's judgment should be a comfort to you, a consolation, an encouragement to you in all your adversity. So, uh, so will he have that day unknown to men. We don't know when it's going to be that they may shake off all carnal security and be always watchful because they know not at what hour the Lord will come and may be ever prepared to say, Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen. So there's two purposes, right? The consolation of the godly, the comfort of Christians, and also the warning against the, un- the, the unrepentant and the hypocrite. It's to deter all men from sin, to turn them from their sin and turn them to faith in Christ for salvation while there's still time. And so you could say like with all of scripture, the book of Revelation is an evangelistic book. It's a book of comfort to the godly and it's a book of evangelism, of outreach, of, of pleading to turn to Christ by faith to those who haven't yet repented. This passage in the whole book warns the unbeliever and the unrepentant to flee the wrath to come. This, this passage pleads with the unbeliever and the unrepentant to turn from their sin and turn to Christ by faith while there's time. Acts, Acts 17, verses 30 to 31, Paul says this, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Commands. Not an option. God commands it for our good, but he commands it. He commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Think about that. The resurrection of Christ tells us and assures us of a great many things. One of those things is that Christ is going to return and judge the living and the dead. It's God's stamp, so as so to speak, his his sign or seal on Christ as his king and as his judge of all the earth was raising him from the dead. That he really is the king, God's king and God's judge by whom he has given all judgment to. 
You know, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 6, 2, it says, Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now, or today, is the day of salvation. That's, that's what this text would remind us of. So don't, don't be like Pharaoh, whom we read about earlier in the service in Exodus. Uh, who, what did he do? He saw the signs. He saw the signs of God, miracles. And what did he do? He hardened his heart in unbelief and in rebellion against God. If you're still in your sins this morning, I don't pretend to know everybody's state before the Lord. If you're still in your sins, flee the wrath to come. Turn from your sins and turn to Christ by faith for salvation. Then you may know that your name is in fact written in that book of life, even from the foundation of the world. And think about this, for a believer in Christ, that throne that we read about in our passage, that throne should not be a terror to you. That throne of Christ's judgment, according to Hebrews 4.16, what is it to us now, if you're a Christian? It's a throne of grace, where you can find mercy in time of need. And, and what does the text tell us to do? To come boldly to it. You know, I'm a believer, just like that, that you know, it talks about the, the earth and the sky, you know, fleeing away from the presence of the one on the throne. You get to flee to him, not from him. And when you do that, you need not fear, but you can come boldly to find grace and mercy and help in your time of need. Amen.